Well, once again, we're gathering together as God's people. We get to read his word, the privilege that we have of hearing the words of God spoken to us, that we can learn from it. And so I pray that that's what's going to happen today, that we would be able to um, hear his word, love his word, um, and to uh, together as a family to give him praise and glory and honor. Now, that being said, we have a little something that we're going to do. We don't normally do this. There's a reason we don't normally do it, because um, we have a new member of Elm Creek. There is a, um, well, Lynette has gone through the process of becoming a member of Elm Creek, and uh, she is the newest member that just happened last week. I'm going through that whole process, met with her and heard her story and how God has changed her. And so as a family, we want to come together and not only just welcome her as a member, uh, but we want to pray with her. And so just a clarification, what membership is here at Elm Creek, it does not get you into heaven. Praise Jesus, right? Um, That is not a requirement to get you into heaven. But as a member of Elm Creek, um, Lynette did this. All of you who are members, hopefully, you did this, you signed a covenant agreement. And that covenant agreement basically says, not only do do you agree with what the church holds to be the truth of God's word according to God's word, but through that covenant that as a member, you are committed to love and to care and to serve the body of Christ, not just so that we can fill a space because we need a teacher, but because God calls us to edify the church, that each one of us who are are called to be a part of Elm Creek, that God has given us gifts, God has made us a certain way, and what he has done in us and to us and through us individually is now given to us as a church in order to edify one another and grow each other in our faith in Christ. And so, in other words, if you're a member at Elm Creek, God has called you here And we need you here because God has called you here for a reason, to use your gifts, to pour into us as a church. It's a commitment for you to hold us accountable as a church, that we would stand true to the word of God, not to our own desires or what culture says, but it's also that we as a church then will come alongside you and hold you accountable. So basically, it's in a sense a marriage. It's a covenant between the church and and an individual to come together as a family and to say, we, we want you to be here with us. We love it that you're here with us. We want you to hold us, hold us accountable and to encourage one another together. Does that make sense? It's not salvation. That's, I want to live a life with God's people and committed to God's people, uh, to Christ through God's people in order to serve and edify the church as a body. So, when we come, so that's what membership is here in a huge nutshell. I mean, it was way longer than that, right, when we went through the class, right? Because Mark talks too much, probably. But that's our job, or our, our, what the role of a membership is um, here at Elm Creek. And so we actually, I don't even know, maybe we've done this maybe once before, but we're starting something new that we want new members. We're going to have you come up. Maybe, hopefully this doesn't scare people who aren't members and they want to be members. We're going to bring you up. And as a church family, we want to pray over you. We want to welcome you in that way um, to the membership of Elm Creek and to put our hands on you and to pray over you and to give not only you, but to see what God is going to do through Lynette and through us as a church in order to edify the body, but also to give glory to God. 
So, Lynette, why don't you come up? I warned her about this beforehand, by the way. Um, and then if you are comfortable, and I use that word very loosely, however you want to interpret that. If you're comfortable, we'd like you to come forward. You've got to stand right here in the middle. Sorry. No, that's fine. Believe me, it is fine. You could even take the jacket off. <laughs> there you go. I'm fine with that. So if you are willing, why don't you come forward as a body and we'll gather around her and then, uh, and then I'll, pray. I'll pray over her and we'll pray together. We don't hold your team affiliation against you at Elm Creek. All right, let's, let's pray together. Father, you are glorious. You are great. Uh, we thank you for bringing Lynette, our sister, to us to be a part of this family. I pray, Father, that uh, the commitment and the covenant that we have made together as a body, that, Father, we would be encouraged through it, that we would learn from it, that we'd be held accountable together, that we would be um, uh, growing through it in our relationship with you. But most of all, Father, that that Lynette being a part of this family, that us as a family, as a church, that we would glorify you, that we would make you great, that we would make us less to go into the background and to push you forward and to glorify you. May you use Lynette, Father, to teach us, to equip us, to, um, uh, to encourage us, Father, as a body, um, to edify us, God, as your people. You are good, you are glorious, and we thank you for bringing her into our midst. You are a wonderful God, and we can't wait to see what you are going to do in the future through this relationship, Father, and through us as, as your church. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right, throughout the book of Judges, wait, I thought you were going through 1 Samuel. We are, but Judges is pretty important. Judges is the book that comes before. Ruth happens in the time of the Judges. So in the, throughout the book of the Judges, Israel's love and commitment to God ebbs and flows, mostly ebbing. And if you have never read through the book of Judges, just prepare yourself. There's a lot of ups and downs, mostly downs. Israel obeys and follows God's commands one generation but then with the next generation, they forget the Lord and they do whatever is right in their own eyes. That's the phrase that is used over and over and over again. Eventually, their enemies overwhelm them and they cry out to the Lord for deliverance. And so God sends judges to lead them back to him. They're saved from all of their distresses and their enemies, only to once again fall back into doing what is right in their own eyes, forgetting the Lord being overwhelmed by their enemies until one day as their enemies are once again ruling over them, they cry out to God and they ask for a king. They reject God and they ask for a king so that they can be like all the other nations around them. And so God gives them a king. He gives them what they ask, a king of their own choosing, and everyone excitedly yells, long live the king! But though Saul looks the part, he is far from a great king. 
And at this, his public proclamation as Israel's king, he hides in the baggage in order to avoid his call. And when called upon to fulfill his duty as king, it's the Spirit of God who rushes upon him and empowers him to fight and defeat the Amorites. But to Saul's credit, though he, he proclaims the battle as God's victory, which is right. God defeated the Amorites. Saul did not defeat it. Israel did not defeat them. God won the battle. And once again, the Lord proved faithful in saving His people from all of their distresses when they fear Him, when they obey Him, and when they serve Him with all their hearts. And that's Samuel's plea that we saw last week. Follow the Lord, obey the Lord, fear the Lord with all of your heart, and He will bless you. But turn away from the Lord, and you will be handed over to the hands of your enemy. And then we come to today's chapter, and and we find that Saul is still the same old Saul. He is king, yes, but he is far from a king who fears and obeys the Lord. So, we're going to start where Luke left off, chapter 13, 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 8, and then we're going to read to the end of the chapter, or uh, sorry, to 15, 15a, the first half of uh, verse 15. He waited seven days, that is, Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering before him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And when Saul went out to meet him and greet him, Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. I love this next part. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. I made myself do it, Samuel. I didn't want to, but I forced myself to do it. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over all Israel, over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. Now, we're not exactly sure how long after Samuel's farewell speech in chapter 13 when that, this incident takes place, and we don't really know because there's a, t- a contextual problem or a textual problem, and, and I feel like I need to acknowledge it just really, really quickly in verse 1. Now, most Bibles today actually have a note to talk about the different alternative readings of it. Um, is it how many years? It, literally, it says he was one year old when he began to reign. And so what does that mean? And so all of these textual or this textual problem, in the end, it does not t- change the, tr- the crux of the passage and what is trying to be brought across and the point that is trying to be brought across. Saul is reigning as king 
And more than likely, these events that we're reading today in chapter 13 take place not long after Samuel's farewell address where he says, obey the Lord and all will go well with you. But where is Saul? Where is Saul? What has he done? What is happening right now? Well, he's kept 3,000 soldiers by his side and he sends everybody else home. It seems that he's content to stay where he is and not fight to free the people from under the heavy yoke of the Philistines. He's just hanging out and staying put. But his son Jonathan, bless his heart, has a different idea. He attacks and he defeats a garrison of the Philistines, prompting the Philistines to gather a large army to reestablish their power over Israel. Jonathan's attack forces Saul to now have to act because he gets the credit for it. Did you, did you read that? Saul has defeated a garrison of the Philistines, which is right. He's the king, right? He gets the credit for it, even though his son Jonathan is the one who accomplished it. But it forces Saul to act. And so he calls all of Israel once again to gather to him for battle. But when the people see the huge army of the Philistines, they hide in caves and tombs when they're not supposed to be near dead people and even in wells. They're doing whatever it can, they can to run away and hide even crossing the Jordan River in order to escape. In other words, Saul's army was trembling at the sight of a powerful enemy. Saul hasn't given much confidence that he's going to be a faithful king to the Lord. Certainly not to us who have been reading his story. His, he first avoids his call as king, and now he hesitates to deliver the people from the yoke of the Philistines, and it takes his son's actions to force his hands. These are not good things for a king to be leading the people. And it seems that so far Saul has only acted actually when he's been compelled, either by Jonathan or by the Spirit of God rushing upon him. Obedience to the Lord has not been known as his strongest trait. But Saul's life, Saul's life is not simply an example of poor leadership or even ungodly leadership. That's there. But his life, his failure to be an obedient king forces us as God's people or as people who are reading this story to go, well, if Saul can't be an obedient king, where is this obedient king going to come from? We've got to find this obedient king. And then, of course, we read today with Samuel, he's going to, he's, he's already, God has already chosen a man after his own heart. Literally a man after God's choosing, not the people's choosing. And we go, that must be the king. But it's David. And as you read his story, he fails too. His failure, Saul's failure, David's failure, Solomon's failure, every king afterwards, failure to be an obedient king to the Lord points us to Christ's faithfulness as the obedient king. You look and you look and suddenly Christ shows up thousands of years or hundreds, thousands of years later and we say, here's the king. And we talked about this in detail last week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but where Saul fails, where David fails, where all these kings fail, where you and I fail in our obedience to the Lord. Remember what Saul, Samuel said, if you obey with all of your heart, it's going to go well with you. God is going to bless you. 
but we can't. It's, I mean, that's the reality. We're frustrated. We fail. And at obeying Him with all of our heart all of the time. But where we have failed, Christ is perfectly obedient to the commands of God. The Philippians chapter 2 speaks of Christ's perfect obedience even to the point of death upon the cross. He lived the perfect life of obedience, willingly giving His life on the cross in obedience to the Father's commands. And because He obeyed, Every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus is the king. Here is the king who did what Saul could not, what David could not. And because he obeyed, he has made the way possible for us to have a relationship with the Father. And it's all to the glory of God. He is our obedient king but he is also the perfect sacrifice. Saul has been instructed by Samuel to wait seven days before heading into battle so that the proper offerings could be made to the Lord. But Saul's army is slowly disintegrating in front of his eyes. Each day, more and more soldiers are leaving the camp and they're, they're going home or they're hiding in a tomb. They're so afraid. Something had to be done soon or Saul would have no army left. I mean, from humanity's point of view, this just makes sense, right? And so Saul makes the offerings to the Lord, which is strictly prohibited by the Lord himself because only the priest, Samuel, was allowed to make that type of offering. And wouldn't you know it, because this is what always happens, right? As soon as he gets done... Up walks Samuel, and he says, what have you done? He's, Samuel doesn't even need to ask. He, he, he knows what's happened. He could probably smell it in the air. What have you done? Saul's disobedience results in the end of his kingly line, and the kingdom would now go to another man, one of God's own choosing. Saul's sin meant the removal of God's blessing and of God's presence from Saul. Now, we may sit here and go, well, this seems like a bit of an overreaction by God, right, for such a simple act. I mean, so what if Saul gives it instead of Samuel? It's just a dead animal who's being burned. What's the big deal? I mean, it's not Saul's fault that Samuel was late. Why does God do this? Does He really take obedience that seriously? And the answer is yes. Yes, He does. God had given detailed and direct instructions on how to give the, the, this offering, this burnt offering. So Saul couldn't plead ignorance. He knew what he was doing. He knew it was wrong. But in doing this, because, I, I, I mean, he just wanted to plug the leak, right? I mean, I'm losing, I'm losing my army. I've got to do something. I'm just going to plug this leak. What's the big deal? But in doing it, he cuts himself off from the one who actually can deliver him from his enemy. His eyes deceived him because he saw his salvation in the size of his army, not in the greatness of his God. And so God rejects him. 
He rejects his offering. He rejects Saul as king. Where Saul disobeyed out of fear, jump forward to Jesus Christ, he obeys out of, out of joy. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says this, Look into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ joyfully obeyed his Father, and the sacrifice of his life was the perfect sacrifice. It was the only sacrifice that could be offered for all of our sins, past, present, and future. This is why Jesus is called the Lamb of God. He's the perfect lamb, the perfect sacrifice, and it was a sacrifice that was acceptable to God. In God's instructions about the burnt offerings in Leviticus chapter 1, the burnt offerings were given to atone for or to pay for the sin, uh, 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 pay the price of an individual's debt for their sin against God. Something had to be done. You sinned, something has to be done. Something has to be given to pay the debt, and the debt was death. So to prevent somebody else from dying, the individual from dying, an animal died, its life was taken from it, and it paid the debt of sin. It was placed upon the animal instead of on the individual person. And such an offering properly given, and it says this in Leviticus chapter 1, is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It's not a mistake then that the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, therefore be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Christ's willing sacrifice of himself to pay our debt of death for our sin was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, don't, don't hear me wrong. Don't, don't read into this and hear that God somehow found a sort of sick enjoyment out of watching his son die on the cross. That is not what it means by it being a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Christ's death was pleasing because it gave glory to God. And it paid the debt that you and I could never really pay. It was a pleasing aroma to the Lord because it reconciled a broken relationship between Him and us. Because no animal's death could sufficiently pay for the, the debt of all my sin before God. Where Saul's offering was a stench in the nostrils of the Father and was rejected by God, Christ's obedience, Christ's offering and giving himself as the perfect offering, the lamb to be slain, was a pleasing and acceptable offering to the Lord. As we read in Hebrews 12, 2, he is now seated as the king of kings on his throne at the right hand of the Father in heaven. The real question 
when we read the Old Testament, it's easy for us to read it and go, well, that's an interesting story. Saul was stupid. Why did he even do that? And then just go, well, I'm never going to be like that. And yet the reality is, is, as people, as humanity, even as Christians, we tend to fail in realizing that the offerings that we give the service that we give to the church. We just talk about membership, right? And how it's to edify the church. Like, like okay, that's, that's my sacrifice. That should please God. But the reality is, is that it's never enough. So I got, I got three questions. Well, one question applied three different ways. Because we all like this very practical application. Usually, and I've said this before, the application to a a, a, a verse is usually do it, right? Do it. Well, what are we supposed to do? Do it. That's not necessarily all that helpful, right? Because you're like, well, yeah, of course, but give me something more practical. So here's just some questions. The first one, and apply different three others. The first one, the overall question, who will you follow? Or who do you follow if you're a believer? So first of all, do we place our hope and trust in the leaders of this world, the Sauls who look and perhaps even act the part of Savior? Now, maybe deep down we say, well, this leader, this pastor, or this politician, or this teacher, or professor, or parent, this authority figure, this worldly leader, yeah, they're not perfect. And we may say, I don't trust in that person to care for me and to save me from anything, and yet our actions tend to prove differently. When we read the news and we read what's happening in the news, do we lose sleep over it? Do we get frustrated? Do we get angry? Do we lose hope? Do we fail? and our trust of people? Do we place our hope and trust in leaders of this world? Do we place a burden on them that they were never meant and never able to actually carry, satisfy me in my life? And yet even the greatest of our earthly leaders can only do so much because the reality is there's no, ether, and we, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, no earthly leader can save us from all of our calamities and all of our distresses. It just can't happen. None can pay our eternal debt for our sinful rebellion against God. And none of, us can, none of them could save us from most things in this world. So do we place our hope and our trust in the leaders of this world? Or let's make it a little bit more personal. Do we place our hope and trust in ourselves. Like Saul, do we take matters into our own hands, trusting that somehow I can save myself by working hard enough, living good enough, obeying enough, going to church enough, acting the part of a faithful Christian enough, saying the right words enough, taking control because, you know, I can do it better than anybody else. I can save myself. I become my own savior. And perhaps if we looked apart, then maybe God is going to welcome us with open arms knowing that, man, we tried our darndest to obey him. Maybe he'll just let me squeak in 
by the seat of my pants. But the reality is, is we cannot save ourselves from all calamities and all distresses. All you got to do is live like a day and you'll figure that out, right? We just cannot save ourselves from earthly calamities, all of them, and all our earthly distresses, let alone pay our eternal debt for our sinful rebellion against God. You can serve in the church until you're blue in the face. It doesn't save you. You can say all the right things. You can read the Word of God from morning till evening, from the day you begin reading until the day you die, and that does not save you. It's good. We should probably do more of that, but it doesn't save us. It doesn't pay the debt. Because there's only one who has done all of this. There's only one who can save us from all distresses and all calamities on earth. Maybe not in that moment, but someday he will come and he will take us home, either by death or by his second coming. And then when we enter into eternity, there are no tears, there is no sadness, there are no calamities, there are no distress. There's, there's none of that. Why? Because Christ has saved us from those. No politician can. No parent can. No pastor can. No matter how many times you go to church, no matter how good things you do, they can't. It's only in Christ. He has lived the perfect life. He has offered the perfect sacrifice of himself, and he was accepted by God to pay our eternal debt. Christ took our place, and he became the fragrant offering to the Lord for us. Why, why Mark, would you every single Sunday, heck, I could preach this, because you say the same thing every single Sunday. Why? Why? Because, I don't know if you've noticed, but we tend to forget the calamities and the distresses of this world, the calamities and distresses in our own heart, the calamities and distresses in a church body, a family of God, they can tend to overwhelm us. We get frustrated, we get irritated, and we lose focus. I mean, that's why we gather on a Sunday morning, at least I hope that's why we're gathering on a Sunday morning. we got to be reminded. It's like a reset for us so that we as Christians can live faithfully every single day for the next seven days until we come together again and be reminded again. I am saved by Christ and the calamities of this world. I can lay them at the foot of, of Christ. And even if the calamities don't end, he will give me peace even in the midst of that. There are, there are some of you who are, are out here right now who have experienced major calamities in your life, and I've talked to you, and you have said, I know Christ, and I have the peace of Christ. You can't say that without Christ. You don't really find true peace that's lasting in the midst of horrible circumstances. We need to be reminded as God's people every week. I need to be reminded every single week the things of this world are burdensome, and they wear us down. But in the end, as a Christian, I go, my Lord is sovereign. 
He is in control. And what he does in this world, the things of this world are not out of his control. And he's going to use all of those for good, to glorify himself, to bring glory to him, to praise his name, to make his name known throughout all of the world, or maybe just your neighborhood, or maybe just your household. We need to be reminded, as God's people, who we really are. That our only hope, our only eternal hope, our only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ our Lord, because it is Christ who is the perfect king, whose obedient sacrifice of himself was the only sacrifice that was acceptable for all sins. And through him alone are we saved from the wrath of God for our sins. And as I said before, that relationship is restored. And as God's people, we come on a Sunday morning and hopefully every day of our life and we say, praise be your glorious and holy name, Father. That whatever you're dealing with in life, whatever distress, whatever calamity, from the smallest to the biggest, God's not too big for it or too small for it. It's not too big for Him. He can handle it. In fact, He is handling it and He's working in ways that you could never fully know and understand. So who will you follow in that moment? Will we fall back on ourselves? I'm strong enough to do it because I'm the only one who can do it right. Or we fall back on other people. Boy, I sure hope this person helps me and does this for me so that I can live a better life or be more confident and have more peace? Or are we going to follow Christ and each day wake up, praise Him for the fact that we're breathing because it's a gift from Him and to go as your child, as your son, as your daughter, I am yours. Use me as you wish and whatever may come my way today, good or bad, horrible or wonderful, you never change and you are always there to walk me and strengthen me through this situation. This distress and this calamity does not define me and I refuse to be a Saul. I want to be a Samuel. I want to be obedient but praise be your name when I struggle and I fail to be obedient that you've already been obedient for me and I can rest in you, in you as my God. So who do you follow? Who do you turn to? Who do you worship? Who do you praise? Who do you live for? This passage tells us don't be a Samuel or don't be a Saul, be a Samuel. Lean on him who is the sweetest fragrance of, of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, I pray that as your people, that we would stand firm in your truth, that your son, your son did what we never could. And you and your son, you, Father, you are the one who gets us through this life. May we follow you and trust you. May you remind us constantly that we are your children and the things of this world cannot save, only you can. And I pray, Father, if there are 
those who are hearing this this morning and and man, they're going everywhere else. They're going to the things of this world, to leaders, to pleasures of this world, to people of this world, to family, to kids, to holidays. Father, in the end, all of it is, n- is nothing compared to what you can do to us and through us and for us, Father. Let it all be to your glorious name. I pray they would hear these words, the gospel message that salvation is found only through your son, that they would confess and they would believe and you would add to the number of the saints, Father, to the church throughout all of history and do it for your name, not ours. Help us to follow you, to trust you, to not let the things of this world overcome us. But Father, to lay all our burdens at your feet and to praise your name even as the world around us is falling apart. We ask this in your name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our song together?